Hi everyone, and welcome to Remaking Tomorrow, a series of conversations about the future of teaching and learning. I'm Ryan Radzeski, here with Greg Baer, and we're the co-authors of When You Wonder, You're Learning, Mr. Rogers' Enduring Lessons for Raising Creative, Curious, Caring Kids. This is a podcast powered by Remake Learning, a network that ignites engaging, relevant, and equitable learning in support of young people navigating rapid social and technological change. Today we're talking with Ted Dintersmith, an author, activist, film producer, and much more. He produced the award-winning documentary Most Likely to Succeed and, with Tony Wagner, wrote a book by the same name. He's also the founder of What School Could Be, an online community where educators share insights, inspiration, and proof that change is possible. Ted, welcome to Remaking Tomorrow. Ah, thrilled to be here. Ted, you are so well known across the field of education, but education isn't where it all began. In fact, among other things, you're a former venture capitalist. You're a pretty good one at that. You were actually ranked the top performing investor in the country at one point. So how did you get from there to here? What sparked your interest in schools and learning? If you went back 12 years ago, I would never have imagined how my life would change. For me, it was really a career with a ringside seat to technology advances to how fast innovation is changing the world. And then like a lot of things that change your life, it was personal. My kids got to middle school. I started to pay some attention to what they were being asked to do, to what would be required to do well in school, to what was being discouraged or would be a real problem for a kid. And I said, wait a minute, this is all upside down. The way you get on an honor roll is to be good at things that automated solutions do perfectly. And when you're creative, when you're audacious, when you ask a lot of questions, that can cause problems. And so I dropped everything, took on the cause of trying to help schools innovate in informed ways. And I think I benefited from a business background that wasn't a corporate CEO mentality, because CEOs are in the mode of, I know what's best, I'm going to tell everybody what to do. I have a venture capital mentality, which is, what dreams do you want to achieve and pursue, and how can I help? support that, which we've tried to take forward for educators in the field, as well as for students. Ted, you've talked before about how when you were watching your own kids come up through school, you started to catalog what it is they were learning and you were categorizing it, some of it as useless, some as helpful, and you were horrified by how much was ending up in that useless column, despite, you know, the best efforts of teachers. So can you describe for us a little bit about what those columns look like? What are some of the specific things that you found not at all helpful? And what are the things that you found kids were doing that uh, were promising? It all started innocuously. I got a note from the school that where our kids were going, a school most of the parents would say was a great school. They explained to parents that they were launching a new program to equip kids with important life skills. And my initial reaction was, wow, that's great. But that got me thinking, like, what is the point of school after all? I mean, why is this a new initiative? I went to the session. It was pretty dismal. It was, you know, once a month, we'll show kids videos of tar-infested lungs and tell them they shouldn't smoke. But that got me thinking about what kinds of learning experiences would be beneficial to kids. And I just started tracking what they were bringing home from school, not in a critical or judgmental way, just trying to understand it. I was just blown away by the large amount of lessons and curriculum and homework assignments that that I just looked at and said, like, nobody uses this as an adult. I'll give you an example. Our son was required to take art. And 
you know, he wasn't that excited about that, but we were living in a place that had a stream. And so he said, I don't want to do pottery. Could I design and build a bridge that would cover the stream and maybe do a bit of research into what makes for a beautiful bridge and maybe do a little bit of the analysis for how you decide whether a bridge is stable and will support the load. And I'm like, your school will love this. I mean, this is, <laughs> this is fantastic. That's a great assignment. And then he came home and he said, they said, no, you can't do it. It would set a bad precedent. If we let you do something you wanted to do, then we'd have to let other kids do what they want to do. Why aren't you encouraging kids to create initiatives they care about that are relevant to their lives and support them to carry it out and hold it to a high standard? That seems to me to be an important element of what education should be offering to kids, challenging kids with. That was the one school, but then I started visiting other schools, meeting people, talking to people, saying it was just, just an outlier. I realized this is an education model that teachers had no voice in and don't like, that students have no voice in that works very much against their interest, and that is in place because of a massive amount of inertia. So let's think about some learning experiences right now. We're going to fast forward to this very moment because as you've read, as we've read, there's so much chatter at this moment about this new tool called ChatGPT. It's an artificial intelligence tool that can turn out some pretty impressive written pieces about whatever you might ask. So in your opinion, Ted, what would it take to equip schools today to adapt to new tools like ChatGPT? Well, a lot of it is just a mindset. A lot of it is people just saying, we're going to embrace this instead of fight it. You know, it's a particularly great example because it's such a direct wake-up call. You know, most high school teachers will tell you that a chat GPT essay is consistent with some of the very best essays that high school kids can write. To me, this is unequivocally great news. It means that any kid in America suddenly is writing at the level of an honors high school kid. That doesn't mean they understand the ideas. It doesn't mean they can explain and defend the interesting points of view they're advancing. It just means that the mechanics of putting your ideas into a written form have gone from 40 feet below the surface of the earth to the 10th story. It really elevates everybody's ability to express ideas in written form. To me, that's just unequivocally great news. It's fascinating to watch the reactions of some educators to this, maybe most educators. I read this story and at first I thought it was one of those satirical spoofs. You know, it was New York City District banning the use of ChatGPT and to make sure kids weren't using it, they were gonna take precious time in class when everyone's together and make kids write their essays out by hand. It's real. What a tragic waste. And you think about taking that, you've just moved the floor up for writing quality and challenging kids to bring clearer, more interesting, more thought-provoking perspectives, make the writing even better than ChatGPT, debate what they're expressing and advocating in class in oral debates instead of you know, a paper that's handed in. I look at that as really great news, but when you don't embrace those advances, when you fight them, you are putting kids on the wrong side of innovation instead of equipping them with the skills and mindsets to leverage innovation. What's clear is that if kids after kids after kids who come out of school are on the wrong side of innovation, they're going to get crushed. How do they feel about the decisions adults are making on their behalf? I mean, do they look at this and say, we are being ruled by, our futures are being shaped by adults that are just completely clueless when it comes to what the opportunities are. And so 
Is innovation an opportunity or is it a threat? It's both. Can schools capitalize on the opportunity side while they work to minimize the threat side? They could. I think we miss enormous opportunities and, and we let a lot of potential be squandered. When we just ignore what these advances have made easy for everybody to do. Ted, speaking of essays, you wrote one yourself for the Washington Post a few years ago that we've gone back to actually a couple of times. And there is one quote in that essay that strikes me as perhaps even more true now than it was when you wrote it. And you wrote that, quote, absent profound change, our country is a decade away from having 50 million chronically unemployed young adults adrift in life and awash in debt. And that's the end of the quote. And that, that's a heavy prediction. And yet you don't despair. In fact, you go on in the essay to say you're inspired and that you're hopeful. And I'm, I'm wondering if you could tell us why that is. What inspires you and what gives you hope? I'll start with what gives me fear. I really wish that I didn't believe what I wrote. I really wish that these advances weren't leaving millions and millions of kids exposed and vulnerable, that community after community across America didn't see its future prospects dwindling. I don't welcome that world. And if it didn't exist, I'd be traveling and playing golf instead of you know, going all around the country talking about education. But what gives me hope and what I would say to anybody listening is that so much of this is under your control. Families can shift priorities even if they don't get buy-in and lean in from their school, there's a lot of time at home you can shift priorities. A classroom teacher can do amazing things. A school can do incredible things. And I've had the, the really exciting honor to have gone to Pittsburgh twice for Remake Learning Days, where you see education reimagined, rethought in ways that draw on kids' intrinsic motivation and bring out talents that maybe the kid didn't even realize they had. And then you watch the parents who come and see the results of that work and their jaws drop. And so many times I'll say, oh my God, I didn't know my kid had that in them. And to me, that's what gives me hope is that it's in every kid. Every kid has superpowers, some latent, some overt, but kids have their superpowers. And what we need is school experiences that draw out and foster a diverse range of superpowers instead of standardized school that say, we're going to value you for how much material you can memorize, how agile you are at replicating low-level procedures, and can you follow the instructions? Like, that's crazy, right? I mean, that's what robots and AI, they do that perfectly. But when you start to open up your eyes to a broader set of learning challenges and support the educators in the field who want to bring those challenges to kids, who want to create those challenges, boy, great things can happen. And Ted, those superpowers, you've seen those superpowers all across America. A few years ago, you crisscrossed this country and went to all 50 states. What sparked the idea for that trip? And was what you found the same as what you expected to find? I think one of the things that happens is a lot of people who weigh in on education live in certain clusters of areas. You know, there are a lot of people who give money to education that live in New York or Washington, D.C. or San Francisco. They see a narrow perspective of education. I was able to go to where the kids were. I spent a third of my time in rural America. I went all over and was surprised. I was surprised by the dedication and passion of teachers. They entered the profession to help kids find their life paths. I find it appalling to see these pro-ignorance wings that say, oh, teachers are out to groom kids. There are a bunch of crazy things going on in our country that put teachers 
in uncomfortable to really quite threatening positions when these teachers, these administrators, these librarians are just trying to help kids navigate their way forward and create the life the kid wants to have for themselves. So that blew me away. And then also I felt like, boy, if you look, if you go to any school, any district, certainly any state, you find these great examples. It's not as though we don't know what to do. It's happening every day, but it's happening in nooks and crannies and it's not widespread. And when I interviewed these educators doing these great things, there were two common denominators. I think this is really important. One is it was never, oh, I'm doing this because the state told me to, or because it was in Common Core, or because it's part of No Child Left Behind. It was something they came up with themselves. They were deeply committed, would be really helpful for the kids that they care about. The second thing they said is, somebody had my back. If it's a classroom teacher, the principal had their back. Maybe somebody else in the school, but generally the principal said, I'll support you. If it was a principal, the superintendent, I'll support you. And you realize that if you want to unleash the creative potential of our teachers, those are the keys. If we unleash the creative potential of our teachers, we will unleash the creative potential of our students. Instead of mandate some generally clueless policy, shove it down their throats and then police it. And we do a lot of the latter in education and far too little of the former. And Ted, some of those observations that you just shared became the basis of an incredibly popular book called What School Could Be. So can you tell us about that book and what you hope it still accomplishes? The book intentionally shines a light on the bright spots. And I did my best to find at least one great example in every state to sort of reinforce the point that it's happening everywhere. But I wanted to make the point it's being done with great vision, with courage, with creativity. And let's build on that because innovation can be contagious and success can beget success. And it's a lot easier to say, well, if the person down the street's doing something interesting, maybe I can do it and maybe I should do it. But then that led to the whole What School Could Be community, which I co-founded with Ken Robinson. Ken passed away tragically. That was heartbreaking for the world, certainly difficult for us, but we've taken that forward. We're reaching schools and districts, states even, even some countries with these helpful resources to help communities clarify what goals they want to pursue and help educators in the field make small confidence building steps that lead to real progress over time. And we want to talk more about that. This is Greg Bear along with Ryan Rudzeski. We're talking with Ted Dintersmith, someone we admire as a genuine education change agent. Yeah, so Ted, you just alluded to what school could be, not the book, the community. It's one you launched in 2021. It offers teachers free professional development and coaching and resources. It now offers a master's degree. Is that correct? Yeah, we're making some progress. Can you tell us a little bit about how the community works? First, there's a community platform that I describe as Facebook without the ads or scuzziness. And I give a lot of the credit for that to Sir Ken. You know, one of the things he felt was really important was to offer community-based resources to educators in the field. He was a very modest man, but he would say, I have these huge audiences, 10,000 people will give me a standing ovation, but I don't see things changing. People want to make progress, but I don't see it happening. And so we noodled on how we could put together a resource that would help people make change in a way that endures and in a way the community accepts and embraces. So that community element, when you get there, it's a whole set of things. It's their occasional talks. We get great reception. They're all archived. So if you're looking for points of inspiration, points of guidance, points of practicality, we have selected guest speakers. We set up private 
forums for a school, for teachers across a set of schools, for district, you know, like you name it, whatever private group you want to set up, you can set it up. We have free coaching. We have a whole set of video-based resources that sort of follow in the footsteps of most likely to succeed that say, hey, if you want to spark more student creativity, here are some steps. If you want students to ask better questions, here are some steps. We started it, you know, a little over a year ago. We've got 13,000 innovative educators participating. I'd love it to be 13 million. So, you know, you're never doing enough and you're never reaching enough people. But it's a great forum. And one of the things that I take particular heart with is I was on a forum a couple of weeks ago and a teacher said, kind of out of the blue, I don't even know if the teacher knew I was on the forum, but she said, a few months ago before I found this forum, I was planning to retire. I couldn't take it anymore. And then I found this and it's helped me find the joy of teaching. And I basically sent a letter to everybody saying, I've changed my mind, I'm gonna stay. And, and so that whole thing about, if you have joyful teachers, you'll have joyful students. If you have teachers with agency, you'll have students with agency. If you support creativity and curiosity among teachers, collaboration among teachers, that will ripple down to what you support with students. When you micromanage teachers, when you put them online and subject them to death threats, when you set up a governor's hotline, when you accuse them of grooming students for certain things, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> like, like these are the precious vital resource that can help our communities and the nation move forward. Let's respect and support our teachers. But we live in a world where some people, I think, to just score narrow political points, have decided to wage war. And I, I, it's just the most unfortunate of developments. Ted, we're great big fans of your book, What School Could Be. And you mentioned that you're working on a new book about math. So can you give us a preview? And why specifically math? Why math? Math is a perfect encapsulation of a curriculum that stays stuck in time. A kid who knows how to use Photomath or Wolfram Alpha could get an 800 on their SAT or a 5 on AP Calculus. Just put your camera over it. It solves it. It lays out the steps and it links you to a video that explains what's going on. But we don't let them use that. It's a lot like if you said you want kids to be able to drive a car but we're gonna have you spend all of your secondary school years memorizing the constituent parts of a carburetor and a brake assembly and never drive a car. What really prompted me, what got me into high gear was what happened this fall when they announced the, the so-called NAEP scores, the National Assessment for Education Progress. Oh gosh, the reaction, you know, catastrophic, disastrous, plummeting, a generational emergency. There, people just were like, this is it. All of our kids are completely screwed forever because of relatively tiny drops, the biggest one was eighth grade math scores, which went from 282 to 274. I looked at that and said, if the scale's 282 and you drop eight points, that to me sounds like 2.8%, which on a test that's about 35 questions, sounds like one question missed incrementally over the last time the tests were administered after two and a half years of COVID disrupted education. That to me sounds pretty good. And maybe we should give a shout out to teachers who kind of held it together. But the narrative was hysteria. So I started pushing on it. And I realized that the people who are writing those stories, the people who are implementing those policies, the people saying that getting back on track with this eighth grade math was critical, they themselves lacked data literacy. They themselves couldn't understand what numbers mean. And when you look at the sample questions on the eighth grade math, most of them are things no adult ever uses. You know, absolute values, factoring numbers, adding fractions with different denominators, on and on and on. You know, I said to the group that leads that initiative for the federal government, I said, if we really cared about kids getting good at that, why don't we just let them use photo math? 
I mean, if it's really important in life to know what an absolute value is, put into photomath, what's the absolute value of negative 300? It'll tell you 300, right? I mean, like add one third to one eighth to one twenty sixth. Just say that to Siri, it gives you the answer. I mean, if that's important, why don't we let the automated tools do the low level stuff and now spend the time on what these actually mean and how you apply them? Because so many people come through their math curriculum feeling limited, feeling they're not smart, not being able to pursue the life path they care about. Some of those scores stick with people through adulthood. And I say like, wait a minute, if this is all now being handled readily by an online resource, why don't we do something far more interesting? And so I've had this idea in my mind, and, and so I'm now carrying it forward, where I write about, just assume you have a supercomputer in your pocket, what could you now do? And, and it turns out that the really interesting forms of math pervade our lives. I'd encourage anybody who hears this, start looking at the headlines you see that have a number in it and ask yourself what's behind that number. And you realize it's some form of an estimation, good, bad, or indifferent, some form of a prediction with all sorts of assumptions behind that. It's a result of an algorithm that you may or may not understand. It's a creative statistic that somebody came up with. It's an informed use of probability or an uninformed use of probability. So that's what I'm up to. Ted, how can people follow you and find out more about the work you're doing? I'm an intermittent Twitter poster at, at Dintersmith. I have to warn people, I tweet as much about politics as education, so that might be something people aren't interested in. Pop in and join the What School Could Be community. I'm, I'm active there. I'm easy to reach. My email is just first initial last name at gmail.com, and, and I try to get back to people who send me an email. If somebody's a change agent and needs help in their school or community, I'll do Zoom calls, I'll donate books. I Like anybody who's fighting this fight and trying to battle for better futures for our kids, I do my best to be supportive as I can be. Ted, before we go, just one more question. What's one thing that parents and educators can do today to make tomorrow a more promising place for every learner? You know, like all good responders to difficult questions, I will say, oh, sure. And then I'll give you two things. The first thing is ask yourself what skills and mindsets young kids are going to need going forward in a world where machines do everything routine. Then just do some little thing. I'm a huge fan of just over dinner time in a car. Ask kids what's on your mind and what are three or four interesting questions you can ask to learn more about it. That whole thing of sparking curiosity, we do way too little of it in schools, but Let's start thinking of interesting questions because it turns out it's not that easy to come up with interesting, revealing questions. And it's a fun thing to do. It's what we did as a family when my kids were growing up as we have a dinner time. It'd be like, what are some questions we would ask to somebody who's an astronomer or who's uh, planning to go to outer space to be on the space station for months or, you know, what, whatever's on your mind, whatever the kids are talking about. If we could get that person, what questions we would ask them? We all know that whether it's a community member or somebody you're working with, the person that can ask the really great questions is the one who can change the trajectory of everything. And when you get really good at asking questions, you are opening a door to all sorts of powerful learning. Thanks again to Ted Dintersmith, an author, activist, film producer, intermittent Twitter user, and an optimist about what school could be. Remaking Tomorrow is powered by Remake Learning. Learn more at remakelearning.org.